Welcome, this is Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 215 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Our episode today is a discussion between me and Tom Fox on the board governance implications of the Boeing 737 MAX safety scandal. Well, buongiorno to everybody, still in Sicily here. Hope everybody is doing well. Uh, and I was uh, glad to get some time with Tom Fox and talk about the recent decision from the Delaware Chancery Court about uh, the board's performance uh, in the Boeing safety scandal. Um, and uh, had a great conversation with Tom, and we'll get to that. First, let's have a word from our sponsor, Steel Compliance. Steel Compliance is the global leader in compliance and ethics management. Steel's compliance and ethics platform is comprehensive, robust, and easy to use to promote a company's culture of compliance. Steel partners with the world's largest, most respected companies to deliver compliance products and services that help organizations embrace a culture of compliance while protecting their brand. Building an ethical culture is a complex undertaking that requires a detailed understanding of the global compliance environment, considerable time, and specialized expertise. Steel's end-to-end -end ethics and compliance platform is designed to provide compliance officers with the solutions they need to proactively address changing regulatory and reputational risks. Steel's ethics and compliance automated platform offers critical functions designed to promote a speak-up culture to advance employee engagement, reporting, and incident management, investigate promptly and fairly potential incidents to ensure compliance with your organization's code of conduct and applicable laws and regulations, including anti-corruption, anti-money laundering, antitrust, sanctions, cybersecurity, and data privacy. Manage your organization's compliance policies and procedures to ensure that policies are updated and disseminated effectively so that employees understand your organization's compliance requirements, Educate and engage your organization to promote understanding in how your compliance program applies to day-to-day -day operations. And evaluate and monitor your organization's business partners, vendors, suppliers, and customers to mitigate risk and ensure adherence to your organization's ethics and compliance requirements. To learn more about Steel's compliance solutions, please contact us at email steelglobal.com or call 415-692-5000. Well, I'm really happy to have uh, Tom Fox here. Even while I'm in Sicily, Tom and I can connect. And Tom, thanks for joining us. Tom is the compliance evangelist, uh, one of my uh, longtime uh, colleagues and friends, and really glad to have you here, Tom, to talk about uh, Boeing. Uh, great, and thanks, Mike. Uh, happy to be here to chat about this most fascinating case. It really is, and uh, I mean, I would like to say that you and I sort of always are in touch with each other, but we both sort of recognize uh, not the Boeing DOJ settlement, although there was the recent criminal indictment of Mark Forkner, um, but you and I both sort of reacted, even calling each other, writing each other about the Delaware Chancery Court decision as well as the recent uh, settlement that came on the heels of the Chancery Court's decision, which denied Boeing's motion to dismiss the shareholder derivative suits, uh, you know, applying the Caremark uh, standard. But, um, you know, Tom, uh, 
I mean, what did you see as sort of the significance of this decision in light of, you know, all the sort of board litigation uh, and Caremark standard cases? Um, what's What struck you as just so important about this uh, decision? So, Mike, I didn't think it's the culmination of Caremark, but it's certainly a continuation and expansion of Caremark. And we both talked about the series of cases, really starting with uh, Bluebell Ice Cream or Marchand, moving forward that have uh, that have had the Delaware court significantly expanding out the Caremark doctrine. And uh, they have made clear that whatever your business's highest risk is, you've got to manage that at the board level. And for the manufacturer of a piece of transportation equipment, whether it's an automobile, a bus, uh, a duck wagon, or an airplane, it's the safety of that equipment. And if you have a safety failure, which leads to a catastrophic event, in this case, two airplane crashes, um, that should be something that's on the board's radar. And even if they're not um, tactically into the weeds with each product, uh, once you have an event uh, that uh, obviously the Boeing 737 MAX had, which was one plane crash, uh, the board better uh, get some oversight involved. And then if you have two events, which Boeing did, which were two plane crashes, uh, the board needs to take a much more active role uh, to make sure that policies and procedures are in place uh, to, pre to prevent this from happening again. And the board was heavily criticized in the Delaware court decision because uh, even after the two plane crashes, uh, the board accepted the explanation of uh, then senior management and specifically the then CEO that uh, everything was under control and this was not our fault. This was the fault of the customers or the purchasers of the Boeing uh, airline, the 737 uh, MAX airplane. So um, it really continues Caremark and it forces boards not to simply be involved in the business of the highest risk of whatever your company has, but if you have an event where those risks come to fruition, uh, the board better begin oversight of that and uh, very quickly. So once again, an expansion of what we'd seen from the Caremark line of cases previously. Yeah, and just, just for a little background, uh, Tom, you mentioned October 2018 Line Air flight crashed in the Java Sea, killing 189 people. Then March of 2019, Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302 crashed shortly after takeoff, killing 157 people. And then shortly after that, uh, the U.S. was almost at the end of countries, but ordered the planes grounded uh, for safety reasons after that. But you know, you make you make a really good point about and and you 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 start with the Bluebell case, and the you know it's kind of it's continued to grow in terms of the court's um, expectations. I guess I would call it sort of an addition for safety purposes to the board's responsibilities. And you said the most significant risk has to be addressed. Well. In the Bluebell case, as I recall, they didn't have a food safety committee. 
relating to their biggest risk and their only business, you know, safety risk, or uh, biggest safety risk, which was, um, you know, products that had listeria in it, ice cream. But here, what is amazing to me is Boeing's board didn't have a safety committee of any sort with regard to the safety of their uh, product, which is an airplane that can crash. Uh, or other things can happen, and I think um, I think what the courts I think what the court is saying is that look board at a minimum we expect you to have some oversight mechanism at the board level a committee uh, that addresses the most significant risk that your product faces in the marketplace, and that was one of the many criticisms of the Boeing board was the fact that they didn't have a safety committee reporting and they even pointed out the board even i mean the court even pointed out that for example to the extent uh whistleblower complaints came in about safety issues and there were those that were lodged in boeing the board was never informed about them there was no mechanism to report to the board we have the this many whistleblower complaints coming in or we have these employee concerns coming in about the safety issues related to the 737 MAX. And uh, I, I think that the that if your business, let's go back to my, my other favorite scandal, the GM crisis with the uh, safety scandal there where innocent drivers were killed um, as a result of a failure to, you know, replace a, a 99 cent part in, in the ignition switch. Um, I, th I think if the, if the Chancery Court saw that case today, I think they, and I don't know if there was any shareholder litigation, but I think they'd find GM was deficient in not having a safety committee to overview, you know, oversee this part of their business. But if, am I reading it too narrowly with the safety issue, or is or are the court is the Delaware court just applying Caremark with a greater sense of expectations? beyond just safety. Well, Mike, uh, the well-known trial lawyerism that bad facts make bad law, yes. I think yes. uh, may in many ways hold true in this case because uh, I've not seen an opinion out of Delaware that so starkly uh, puts the court's opinion in um, context. So the court cited a former board member who said the board doesn't have any tools to oversee safety. And then later, the court had a section from its opinion, which read, this was the title of the section, quote, the board continues to shirk safety oversight, end quote. Mm. Now, mm. we have both, although we, you're still a trial lawyer, I'm a recovering trial lawyer, we both occasionally mm -hmm. gone to the Court of Appeals, and we know what what that's like to go very different atmosphere. When you start getting opinions where a section, section is entitled, the board continues to shirk safety. And then later the court found the board publicly lied about if and how it monitored the 737 MAX safety. Uh, you have a court that's really upset and usually you don't get that in a court opinion. It's much more measured, much more legalistic, uh, and clearly the court was very concerned about Boeing's approach here, and that may have colored the court's decision. Nevertheless, this is now good law. 
in Delaware. And it really shows how, as one commentator said, uh, there's really a new category of risk, corporate trauma, and that the when a trauma occurs uh, to a corporation, and here Boeing with these two crashes, um, the board has to respond, and they have to resp respond aggressively, and they have to respond uh, thoroughly. And a board can't simply sit back and ha ha take a report from senior management that says, we're investigating it. We have it under control. I think the next kind of series of cases might be, well, why didn't you, Mr. or Mrs. Board member, uh, push for an independent board investigation? Why has, um, and I think even you said, uh, the Chancery Court raised the stakes on board member accountability, and I think we're moving to much more accountability at the board level. Uh, and once again, the, the facts were not, you can't get facts that are much more, more harsh than the Boeing facts, at least early on till the board finally woke up. But it was multiple months, uh, I think four to six months before the board really took over uh, this um, uh, trauma. And when the U.S. grounds, the largest U.S. manufacturers, uh, part of an airline fleet, that's that's about as serious as, as a response as it can get from a government regulator. So uh, I think the Delaware court has said, as I said, Mr. and Mrs. Board member, you have significant responsibility. And in, in addition to the fact that you weren't prepared to take this information in at the time or after the crashes, if you don't respond aggressively, uh, there's a potential shareholder litigation. Yeah, I, I I couldn't agree more, Tom. And I think it I think this has more application. You know, maybe my sort of safety focus is a little bit too narrow, as like you said, board trauma or corporate trauma. So like reputational damage to such an extent. The question is, what were you doing, board? to guard against this, you know, there's obviously legal liability and reputational damage uh, uh, issues. And maybe that's the way to look at it. So for example, I have a, let's say a client that, um, you know, uh, manufactures drugs that are, you know, FDA approved. Nonetheless, uh, at the board level, they better have a safety, uh, you know, protocol or they either have to have a committee or the, or the whole board can dedicate time to it. But it seems to me that has to be one of your most significant risks. If somebody gets hurt from your drug as a result of your manufacturing, there has to be a way to deal with that. And um, so I think that's at a minimum what we're talking about. A couple of points going back to what you were saying, Tom, though, about the Boeing case is what's amazing about what the board did is even after the second crash, there was they never launched an internal investigation until the Justice Department started there. They were informed that the Justice Department had started a criminal investigation. And then uh, the CEO at the time, I think it was Muhlenberg, or maybe he had left at that point, but uh, the decision was made, well, let's see where the regulators come out. And I can't think of a, um, you know, a decision that was so contrary to what would be everyone's advice, which is you conduct your own investigation and get out in front of it. Uh, and try to, you know, get a handle on what's going wrong, try to fix it, and try to accommodate with the uh, the regulators and earn cooperation credit. 
Um, but even going back, let's, I mean, there are a couple of facts I have to point out, which is after the first crash of the Lion Air airline, which was October 29th, 2018, Boeing management didn't even notify the board of the crash for 10 days. Uh, and this was cited in the court's decision, even though the FB, FAA and the uh, internal Boeing engineers knew, quickly identified the MCAS or the, the uh, system as responsible for the crash, the CEO reported to the board that the 737 MAX was safe. This is after the first crash, before the second. Then when press reports came out about the MCAS failures and, and, and Boeing had failed to disclose these issues, the CEO continued to falsely tell the board that everything was okay and it was really the Lion Air flights crew's uh, responsibility for the crash. And they didn't even convene a board meeting to, con to consider the Lion Air crash until a optional board meeting was scheduled almost a month from the crash. And there are no minutes of the meeting and they're there uh, and only a few board members attended and Boeing CEO still continued to claim privately and public that the max was safe and then even it, there was no formal board meeting until December 16th and 17th almost 60 or uh, 45 days uh and there was and and the Lion Air crash itself was not a primary issue discussed, but they talked about how Boeing could restore profitability and efficiency. I mean, so it's not even, you know, there's a structural issue, Tom, with regard to the absence of a of a safety committee, but it was like uh, the issue was not even identified after a crash, like maybe we better figure out why this crash occurred. Maybe if we, we should have an investigation, maybe our, our engineers need to be heard from, maybe they need to report to us what is going on. But it seems like the whole thing just, uh, you know, was ignored. And then just to make one other rhetorical point, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, is where was the ethics and compliance officer, the chief compliance officer? What were they doing at this point in time during this, you know, incredible uh, controversy? And then that leads, obviously, nothing happens internally until uh, another crash occurs on March 10th, 2019. But anyways, I know I loaded that up, but I mean, to me, this is a, a damning portrayal. And I just, uh, I want to know what was going on through the board members' heads. Where are the ethics and compliance professionals? at Boeing, because I, I know some of those people, they have a big department. And what happened? So what are your thoughts? No, that's a great uh, question that we really haven't considered, Mike, around where was ethics and compliance and all this. Um, and it makes you really wonder what the culture was at Boeing that didn't allow kind of an ENC response. Let me take this in a little bit different direction, Mike. Because uh -huh. at the time of the crash, the board had five standing committees to monitor and oversee specific aspects of Boeing's business, audit, finance, compensation, special programs, governance, organization, and nominating. And so they had a, a robust committee structure 
in place. And they may have even had uh, some sort of uh, um, general oversight, but the evolution in Caremark, literally through Marchand, Clovis Oncology, and Hughes, is that the proposition that structures, policies, and procedures are in place is not enough. Uh, there must be active oversight. And here in Boeing, uh, I think we can now add the requirement that, that you must respond. And you must respond not right. simply to what management brings to you, but you must uh, affirmatively respond to either take over the investigation, ask some very difficult questions, um, take the lead when you have uh, the, the term, the, the corporate trauma that we've talked about, but it's the biggest risk of your organization. And so that's where I really see the, this case from the Delaware court pushing boards to be not only more accountable, but uh, have more um, flexibility and be more, um, uh, not forthcoming, but more, I guess, more aggressive in their mm -hmm. oversight role. And the, the reason I found your kind of recitation of the facts so critical was that management didn't even, it was 10 days before they reported to the board. Well, you and I right. were probably aware of the crash the same day because of social media. So surely the rest of the world knew about it and it took management 10 days to respond. You know, at the very least management should have sent a notice to the board. There's a crash, we're gathering facts. We'll report in 24, 48, you know, something hours with preliminary findings and we'll seek your guidance moving forward. And that that clearly didn't happen, but that's what I think the Boeing case is going to stand for going forward. You you know you said it perfectly in uh, I, uh, in terms of that there was a requirement to respond and take control of the issue, and uh, the court uh, cited um, and I have the quote you know the, the short phrase they used they said they cited board discussions. Uh, the court cited board discussions of 737 MAX issues that were, quote, passive indications of quality and safety that fall short of the rigorous oversight Caremark contemplates, close quote. And I think that you just said it all. That's what it says. In terms of the passive, passive invocations of quality, invocation, in other words, the board was too passive. They should have taken, a, a, you said they should have been aggressive and taken over. And now they're saying that that falls short of Caremark, of the Caremark standard. And that, I think you're right, is that is like, you know, besides the trauma response, uh, I think you're, you're spot on in that boards better, you know, respond and take control of issues that are so significant. I mean, it's a it's another day, you know, where compliance was is sort of in the background on this issue, uh, and I'll never understand that. But at least from the board perspective, the perspective is you can't just sit there and rely upon, you know, CEO. We're doing fine, everything's fine. What what I think the court is saying under Caremark is you better grab the issue by the horns and find out what's going on. Um, and that's the only way you're going to meet the standard. But isn't and that's kind of similar to what the court's critique was of the Bluebell um, 
board as well, right, Tom, in the sense of like, you know, food safety is a big issue. And when you're getting these, you know, red flags coming up about listeria, you got to grab the issue by the horns and deal with it. And they didn't. You know, actually, Mike, I think it, it's maybe a little bit further than that, because now we have a court saying you had an event, uh, you allegedly had policies, procedures and structures in place, but you weren't aggressive. You were too passive. And that's a level of detail I'm not sure we've seen from a court opinion. And I see that really as as an addition, as a, as a new evolution or, or a new extension at Bluebell. They didn't even talk about it. So we didn't even get right. to, well, your oversight wasn't aggressive. Uh, they had zero oversight and um, right. really did nothing. Uh, but here, I mean, we're really getting to a level of detail in viewing the board's actions that we haven't seen before. And I mean, I hope boards are getting the message messages here that you you can't simply take information in from a report from senior management you have to actively engage and aggressively engage in oversight or there's uh, at least a shareholder's action will get past a motion to dismiss. So, and that sort of leads us to the next issue, which is that uh, the chancery court here uh, denied the motions to dismiss on under the Caremark standard. And what was kind of incredible was after issuing this blistering decision, uh, within weeks after that, um, the case was settled. And it was settled for about $237.5 million, as I recall. And, um, and it was settled quickly, but uh, also what was included uh, Tom, and I know you've written about this as well and spoken about it, is there were a lot of uh, corporate reforms, governance reforms that were included in this settlement. But first, uh, I mean, what was your reading of this sort of quick and quick uh, settlement that was earned by the uh, plaintiffs? Mike, for, first, let's talk about the quantum or the amount of the settlement. Uh, we yeah. have had a billion-dollar-plus settlement in shareholder litigation, and that was Petrobras. Uh, obviously, once you get to that level, you know it sets the benchmark, and perhaps it was an outlier, or perhaps not, as we will see down the road. But the Boeing settlement, I think, is in the top five of shareholder litigation or shareholder derivative action settlements against a board of directors, and it may portend uh, a level of risk for the board in this type of claim that we haven't seen before. It, it's certainly one thing to have a million or two million. You obviously have insurance coverage, but now we're up to nearly 250 million. What's that going to do to your insurance premiums going forward? So I think the quantum of the settlement is significant in and of itself. But the, um, the timing of the settlement tells you that uh, two things. One, Boeing uh, fully understood the risk they were at for taking this to trial. But the second part is procedurally, this settlement was made before there was any formal discovery in the regular discovery okay. process. Under Delaware law, uh, a 12, this is essentially a 12B6 federal motion to dismiss. 
and uh, plaintiffs cannot uh, put forward discovery. They it brought before they engage in full discovery, and plaintiffs have to develop information either through private investigation or public sources. So um, the plaintiffs' uh, lawyers got this information, put it in the pleadings, and the court's not saying you have a cognizable claim, or excuse me, they're not saying you have a claim that's going to win. They're not saying you're even going to get to the jury. They're just saying you have stated a cognizable claim. So it's pretty powerful to me when uh, defendant settles this type of case almost immediately in legal uh, legal length uh, after a motion to dismiss is uh, denied. Um, typically, you would settle after a motion for summary judgment is denied, but before you go to trial, the expense or trial or potentially going in front of a jury. So Boeing clearly saw the writing on the walls and whether they agreed with the court's analysis or didn't want to go through discovery or something else uh, to, to settle this quickly after the denial of a motion to dismiss, which is really the start of a case, not the end, I think is significant in and of itself. Yeah, no question about that. Uh, and I, I think you set out, I mean, frankly, I think they got crushed in the decision. Uh, the discovery is limited under, I think it's called the 220 books and records. So, you know, you get some basic uh, discovery, but the real discovery would have started now. And uh, first off, Boeing also, I mean, it didn't take a rocket scientist, and I hate to use that, uh, when we're talking about Boeing, but they, uh, it wasn't hard to figure out where the judge was going to come out on a lot of this, and the judge made it pretty clear uh, as to as to how she viewed this. And so, I thought, look, they have to settle. But what went along with the 237.5 million uh, was several reforms, and I'll read I'll read them off. Creation of a aerospace safety committee. Uh, which was responsible at the board level, uh, responsible for all airplane safety issues, but consisting of three independent directors. Uh, so you don't have the CEO on it, you don't have anybody. Uh, modification of senior executive compensation incentives to include consideration of adherence to and promotion of safety initiatives. Look, how many, uh, that's kind of like what we saw in Novartis. Uh, Novartis senior executives were subject to adherence and promotion of, of compliance and ethics issues in order to obtain access to certain bonuses. Um, they were there was an agreement to transition new board members and departure of many of the existing board members uh, who were gone, uh, uh, you know, forced to leave. Appointment of new board members, three of whom must have air safety and aviation industry experience. I thought this next one was really important because it reminded me of BP and my good friend, Judge Sporkin, uh, who passed away last year. Appointment of an independent ombudsman for at least five years to receive internal employee concerns, conduct an independent investigation and report on such findings. Uh, the amendment of the bylaws to require separation of the CEO and board chair positions and required an annual public report on safety-related enhancements, public report implemented since the 737 MAX air disasters. Now, I think 
these reforms are pretty impressive for the plaintiffs to secure that along with a you know a large settlement like 237.5 million um but these are all interesting i mean the ombudsman idea separation of the ceo from the as the board chair and creating a new uh getting the existing board members to leave and get out because they had uh, messed up uh, i think this was a pretty good accomplishment by the plaintiffs what do you think tom uh, ab yeah, absolutely. And it really provides a, a benchmark for not simply people like you and myself, but for every board that now we have the Delaware Supreme Court, essentially uh, its decision leading to these reforms. And we have a settlement obviously approved by the court. So uh, I think many uh, boards and those who advise boards need to take a really deep look at this and figure out, do, one, do we have this in place? Two, if not, what are the gaps? And then three, uh, if we have gaps, remediate. I mean, to me, this is kind of a sort of best practices. Uh, and I think it'll raise the bar for best practices. Uh, and uh, we may see more of ombudsmen or ombuds people. Um, and, uh, you know, more focus on, um, you know, uh, uh, whistleblower concerns. They also launched a Seek, Speak, and Listen initiative, uh, and they created a, a new position of a chief aerospace safety officer reporting to the chief engineer. Um, so, look, they're putting in place, um, you know, a structure that can work. The question is, has the culture changed? And what, you know, and I guess we'll wait to see how this plays out. Uh, over the next few years, but it's certainly a really uh, seminal event, at least in my mind. Any final uh, it comments, certainly is Tom, in, on this? Uh, yeah. Well, let me in just kind of pick up on Where your, do we go from here? Yeah, it, it's all about culture, Mike, and you're spot on, and, and uh, Boeing is a massive, massive corporation, and so changing the culture is going to require a significant effort literally starting with the top of the organization. But uh, we now have a, a roadmap of best practices and every board should be looking at this. They should be uh, determining uh, what is our company's biggest risk? What would be our company's biggest corporate trauma? And be prepared for this. This is not you know, um, disaster planning, it's planning, uh, in a way that allows you to not simply respond in a public relations way, but respond uh, from the board level with true oversight and be prepared uh, for your emergency, your emergency management team to have a compliance and ethics component to that, have the, the biggest risk component of that ready to go if something does happen and that uh, the board tells senior management, if we have this kind of corporate trauma, uh, you know, we want an immediate notification and then we'll convene within 24 hours to figure out our oversight of your response. And if we find your response lacking, uh, we're going to take over uh, the response. And I think that's the kind of aggressive posture the Delaware court is is going to continue to put upon boards. All righty, Tom, thanks for your time, your attention, all your thoughts. Um, by the way, just in case, if uh, somebody wants to reach out to you, sort of continue to 
discussion on this and get some ideas from you. Uh, what's the best way to reach you? So you can email me at tfox, that's T-F-O-X, at tfoxlaw.com. You can uh, give me a shout at 832-744-0264, or you can communicate through, or to me through the Compliance Podcast Network website, which is www.compliancepodcastnetwork.net. There's a very cool feature where you can leave me an audiogram. So uh, any of those ways wow. works. Would love to continue this conversation. And Mike, I think uh, you and I are going to be talking about this down the road because the Delaware courts seem to be uh, continuing, evol- continually evolving in this area. And I think we may see more evolutions uh, down the road. Absolutely. Thanks again, Tom. Always good to talk to you. And uh, we'll stay in touch on this one for sure. Thanks. Thanks again for listening to Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series. The Volkov Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. You can learn more about the legal and compliance services we offer at our website, www.volkovlaw.com. You can also follow our award-winning blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and our podcast series. You can contact Michael Volkov at his email address, mvolkov at volkovlaw.com.